a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes Scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. I, I like how he ran in the room thinking that you accidentally articulated baptism incorrectly. Like, wait a minute, you're mistaken. He said to me, he said, you sound like a heretic. Right, yeah. It wasn't like, boy, they must be playing a game where they're articulating someone else's belief. It was, I think Pastor Wolfmiller is off his rocker. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit disturbed that you think that I would actually teach that about baptism. And it's so, 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 so deserved to be crunched. I mean, mega crunch. So, uh, if you guys would put the mega, mega crunch. crunch on the song, that would be awesome. <laughs> Keep uh, preaching the word. Pastors, keep it mediocre. Mediocre and hilarious. The best in auditory torture, this is Table Talk Radio. Oh, and visual torture now. I forgot that we're on also the YouTube. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's right. We're an all we're sensory after, torture. We're trying to burn your eyes and your ears. <laughs> Rather successfully, I have to say. It's going to be good at something, you know? We're, we're <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by the Doctrinal Theology of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Heinrich Schmidt, download for free. Also known as the buzzword generator. And we're going to, so we do buzzwords and then name that theologian. I've taken the dust jacket off so you cannot tell. Oh. What's the what's the binding look, how look far like? I am in that. Yeah. What's it what's looks the like? Uh... <laughs> okay. And also, uh, if we have time, this magazine will do name that theologian from. Boy, that's exciting. You think if I and if the I, Ten Commandments in the news? If I got to see you, I would maybe get some hints. But you're you're too quick with the hand. I know it. All right. Uh, pick a number between one and seven hundred for your buzzword. Five ninety three. Okay, good choice. <laughs> Thank you. I know just what's on page five ninety. <laughs> hmm. uh, oh, huh. This is uh, under the section "Worthy Reception of the Eucharist." Maybe that's what we should make it worthy. Okay, worthy. Here, uh, let me just read a line from. The formula of Concord quoting Luther. Okay. So let's just say that I am Brian Wolfmuller quoting Heinrich Schmid, quoting the formula, quoting Luther. Can't wait to quote you on this later. <laughs> I confess concerning the sacrament of the altar that the true body and blood of Christ are orally eaten and drank. I always knew that drank was the past tense of drink. No one else knew that. Everyone else always thought it was drunk. Mm -hmm. Did you drunk it? No, I drank uh, in the bread and wine, even if the ministers who distribute the Lord's Supper or those who receive it do not believe otherwise or otherwise abuse the Holy Supper, for the Lord's Supper is not based upon the faith or the unbelief of men, but upon the word of God and his appointment. That's great. How about that? That's great. So these were, this, how, I, this is our main thing for the Lord's Supper. Here's, here's the main thing. If you want, because a lot of people... Or, hey, you know this idea of the of the Lutheran idea of the Lord's Supper is so complicated. It's not complicated at all. Here, here is the thing: Jesus says, "This is my body," and we say, "Okay, yeah, got it." 
Yeah. Uh, now, the worthy reception, though, here's it, because Paul talks about the, his worries that some have taken it unworthily. And so we have this from the Catechism. He who is worthy and well-prepared is the one who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. For the, the words for you require all hearts to believe. So worthiness comes not in our works or our purity or our holiness or whatever, but rather it comes by faith. Faith, number one, that the Lord is right when he calls us sinners, and number two, the Lord is right when he forgives our sins. So faith in those words is, makes, is what makes us worthy to come to the supper. I remember there was a, there was a time in which I was attending a church, and um, there were some issues, theological issues, doctrinal issues with, with the pastor. And so we were trying to work through those, and it wasn't, wasn't going too well. But, um, but I remember uh, focusing on that truth as I would go to the Lord's Supper, that uh, while the, uh, the, the preacher... Uh, wasn't delivering God's word as uh, as the scriptures gave it to us, and yet I still knew that what I received from His hand was the Lord's body and blood for the forgiveness of my sins. Uh, now, do I get a? Do I, I found another buzzword on this page. You want another buzzword well, on this page? Give it to me, and I'll I'll give be that. That'll be my buzzword for you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not actually in this. I'm on two pages before, but this is, I've never have seen this word before. Okay. So you have to, I'm going to read it to you. It's a Greek word, and you have to define it. Oh, brother. Artolatria. As opposed to Christolatria. I'm not sure. It says, it, one, it means Christ worship, and the other means bread worship. Oh, oh, nice. So this is Quinstadt who says, The Lord's Supper consists in a sacramental action, visibly in the consecration, distribution, eating, and drinking. So we deny that aside from the use of distribution, eating, and drinking, the body and blood of Christ are permanently united mm. under the forms of bread and wine after the consecration. And we teach that the elevation, carrying about, adoration of the consecrated wafers is not the worship of Christ, Christolatria, but the worship of bread, Artolatria. So this would be the idea of having like a... a a Corpus Christi parade idea where, right. where you're marching through town with the consecrated elements and it's it's as if uh, Christ is 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 parading through town and uh, we go back to the words of what Jesus had given us uh given for you uh that you would eat and drink so if these uh things that the Lord has given us that he's united his body and blood to is not being used for the eating and drinking then they're being uh, abuse for what you, what you, that which he gave it. So, uh, yeah, that's my buzzword for you. Oh, nice. I like it. Also <laughs> brought to you by... I love this book. This book is so great. Download for free. Nice. Wolfmuller.co. Uh, now, the um, this is an interesting phrase. I wonder how... I wonder how I'm going to say it. Okay, I'll worry about that later. Okay, what's next? Uh, I want to do... Uh, name that theologian first, or do you want to do two yes, minutes? Yes, I do want to do name that theologian because right. I think this is going to fit in well with what we've been talking about. Uh, now I have to confess to you, and I'm sorry. I started reading this book, and I am past page ten, um, which I'm really sorry about because I just I like to be consistent and just read the first ten pages. But it does start. This book starts on page. 21 so 2019 so i i'm i'm not that far ahead but i want you to pick a page between one and i mean 20 and 64 and i'm going to read a couple of things from this here book uh, i accept your apology by the way uh yeah. 49 
Okay, now that's a good page, I'm sure, because <laughs> I, I think every page is a good page here. <laughs> um, oh, man. Oh, this is an amazing. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, hmm. uh, in the world of psychological man, however, the commitment is first and foremost to the self and is inwardly directed. Thus, the order is reversed. Outward institutions become, in effect, the servants of the individual and her sense of inner well-being. In fact, I might press this point further. Institutions cease to be places for the form individuals via the schooling and various practices and disciplines that allow them to take place in society. Instead, institutions become platforms of performance where individuals are allowed to be their authentic selves precisely because they are able to give expression to who they are inside. Hmm. <sighs> so, um, this is, is this sort of talking about concupiscence? That uh, we have this inclination to be, you know, turned in on ourselves, and so um, when we kind of scratch the surface, what we're all really doing is being self-serving? Is that the idea a little bit? Yes, yes. Although in the broader context, it's talking about this idea that that there are. Well, it's talking about. So it's it's kind of riffing on this idea that th there's a different anthropology in different eras, and that the ancient classical man was the political man, the medieval man was the religious man, the modern man coming mm -hmm. out of the Middle Ages was the economic man, and currently what we're dealing with is the psychological man. Got it. Okay. And it's saying that the psychological man, modern man, relates to institutions differently than all three previous classes of man. Oh, okay. Previously, political, religious, and economic man uh, understood that the institutions were there to shape and mold them into functioning, happy, meaningful, active individuals. But now the psychological it's a man reverses that mm -hmm. and instead of understanding the institutions as that which mold and shape me rather they become a platform for me to perform fascinating yeah <laughs> it is what do you think uh, about that idea yeah i want to I, mean, I, I, I like to meditate on that a little bit um but you know th so think about the debate we had about marriage a few years ago you know no one's talking about it anymore but you know so so the question was um you know, if if a man and a woman can marry each other um, because they love each other and be committed to each other for the rest of their lives, why can't then, uh, if a man loves a man, do the same thing, or a woman loves a woman, do the same thing? And uh, that's, I think, the perfect illustration of what this author is saying. Because mm -hmm. you would otherwise say, oh, well, if I'm a man and I uh, want to love and be committed to another man for the rest of my life marriage isn't the institution for me then <laughs> mm -hmm. you know i'm excluded from that but rather we say look uh i i want to make marriage into what i want it to be so yeah i think the point's well made oh man i got i want to read you this next paragraph too but i hear the music i'll give it to you after the break because all right we can keep going on this idea okay well do i get two more quotes on this theologian yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll give you two more. I'll give you three more. Ooh, man. Just make it less of an excuse when I get it wrong. Hmm. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs>
It's a movement, not a radio show. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Get the Around the Word devotions delivered to you in a free daily email. You can f- sign up for that at whatdoesthismean.org. Click the Devotions button. So you're reading a book about someone who's reflecting upon the theological anthropology that uh, over time people have interacted with institutions in various ways. And uh, this is fascinating. Also, don't you want to play the game, Guess What I Was Doing During the Break? Uh, Were you getting coffee? No, I was checking the Everbook subreddit. (laughs) Okay. Is that a a real happening thread? No. (laughs) Alas. I should check back more often. How's that going, by the way? You haven't really talked much about that. The old Everbook. That's right. This episode is brought to you by Everbook. I thought this episode was already brought to you by the doctrinal theology of the Lutheran Church. How's your Everbook doing? Uh, I know you got one. Mom yeah. and Dad told me. Yeah. We got Pastor an Everbook. Yeah, I know. I got one for Christmas. I'm very thankful for that. I, I sent them a thank you note saying, I want to be as at least organized as Pastor Wolf Mueller. <laughs> the old Everbook. Uh, it's, it a bit, it's a bit out of shape right now because I got it. It's open and working over here. Okay. Now, I, does, does the subreddit, does Reddit count as a social media? Because I quit the social media except for the Everbook subreddit. I, I, anyway, back to the thing here. Well, no, no let's let's pause on that because um, I think for years you've you've mocked me and ridiculed me for my <laughs> Facebooklessness, <laughs> and and now you've finally come around. I I think sure. I think we need oh, to have yeah, a little, maybe. you know. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad that you've been able to kind of see things the right way. I'm just so sad it, it took so long. long. Yeah. It's more of a testament to your unconvincingness. <laughs> Can you believe it took me this long? <laughs> you're right, but you're, you're not very good you're, at being you're, right. You're just you're just really <laughs> slow on the uptake. <laughs> Maybe that's it. All right. Let's hear another quote from uh, this mysterious theologian. This helps explain... I'm just continuing kind of on, skipping a couple of sentences. Okay. This helps explain the, uh, in part the concern in recent years over making the classroom a, quote, safe place. That is, a place where students go not to be exposed to ideas that may challenge their deepest beliefs and commitments, part of what was traditionally considered to be the role of education, but rather to be affirmed and reassured. While hostile commentators berate this tendency as that caused by the hypersensitivity of a generation of slow- snowflakes... It is actually the result of the slow but steady psychologizing, psychologizing of the self and the triumph of the inward-directed therapeutic categories over traditional outward-directed educational philosophies. Now, here we kick in. That which hinders my outward expression of my inner feelings, that which challenges or attempts to falsify my psychological beliefs about myself and thus to disturb my sense of inner well-being is, by definition, harmful and to be rejected. And that means that traditional institutions must be transformed to conform to the psychological self, not vice versa. Hmm. Fascinating. 
Uh, so this must be a, a modern writer because mm-hmm. uh, criticizing the safe places, which is something that I hadn't even heard of until I was doing a show with you, I think. Uh, is this a safe space? We should do a liner about a safe space. Uh, yeah, that's good. I can't um, think of well, well, maybe we should do that brainstorming off air. <laughs> we don't want to hear, we let people hear the bad ideas. <laughs> Where did that ever happen? Where did that ever stop us? I thought that's what this whole thing was, brainstorming bad if, ideas. If you call our liners the good ideas, you don't want to see our bad ideas. <laughs> Um, Can you believe what we might have thrown out? Oh, so yeah, so, so right. the, the, the chief thing, according to this theologian, the, the chief thing is that I should be able to have an outward expression of what's going on, on the inside. And so um, if anything stands my way, even if it's an institution, so in this case, the institution would be a, a place of learning where it used to be that um, those places were places for debate, uh, considering different ideas, but... Um, but now it has to be this kind of sheltered from offense. And so the first thing is not we're going to exchange ideas and consider which ideas are good ideas and which ideas are bad ideas, uh, what ideas we can support uh, with solid arguments, this kinds of thing. But it has become a idea of um, the, 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 the central thing is don't be offended. Just don't be offended. And so, yeah, I have to express myself. So I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot to be admired about this uh, idea. I mean, it, it's it's profound. It's something that uh, I haven't given much thought to. However, I think we were sort of talking about it last week. Um, mm. What's the word you invented again? I should probably be better at memorizing words that you invent if you want it to. Autodulas. Yes. Autodulas. Yes. Self self enslaved, and the idea that. The, the so the language, by the way, that I was looking for is in this book, and that is the idea of the expressive individual. So, expressive individualism is the cultural mandate of modernity that I am able to express myself freely and so forth. And so, we think that is freedom. But the word we invented last week, autodulos, is to in fact recognize that as a profound slavery to your own desires. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. All right. What if I've got if I've got a, a little line here on expressive individualism? Uh, <laughs> but I mean, but you can okay. see you can see this um, not only going against institutions, but now going against biology mm-hmm. with all the stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, How about this? So, yeah. uh, the, uh, this is what Taylor, Charles Taylor, refers to as expressive individualism, that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. For Taylor, this kind of self exists in what he describes as a culture of authenticity. So expressive individualism gives rise to the culture of authenticity, which he defines as follows. The understanding of life, which is emer- which emerges with the romantic expressionism Uh, of the late 18th century that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or to religious or political authority. So that's the definition there. Okay. So so this is just good old-fashioned Gnosticism. Well, yeah, although not, oops, not identified as such here yet in the text, but... 
But they're getting close. Now I want to give you a, a picture from the footnote. This is really great. So this is Roger Scruton. Remember Roger Scruton who died a couple years ago? And he was the guy who did like the famous, like the BBC thing on art. He was a kind of classic thinker who was criticizing modernity. And he says the way to think of it is to think of the change in dance. So dance used to be there was a live musician playing and there were certain formal steps that you had to learn. And when you learn those steps, you could then dance with everybody else. Like you think of a line dance or these group dances or something like this. And to and the joy came from being the same as everybody else, fitting in with everyone as you danced around. Compare that to the nightclub where you just do, as he says it here, your own thing. <laughs> and he says that's the difference between dancing with people versus dancing at people. And now modernity is that we're just all doing our own thing. We're dancing at each other. We're not dancing with each other, hmm. which is a, I think that's a really profound hmm. image for the kind of the shift of thinking. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there's this um, idea that there's there's something immaterial that has to be discovered. There's, there's, there's something um, beyond what is... Um, what is seen that is tangible, uh, that is uh, separated from what is tangible. And the discovery of that is um, what's actually important. So, so you, it's, it, it comes a, a, as, a, as a discarding of that which is seen and an embracing of that which is unseen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what is seen, what yeah, exactly. And what is seen then has to conform to what is unseen, to the true yeah, reality, yeah, the yeah. unseen psychological self. You want more, one more thing here? Yes. I think this this, this is mind-blowing. Um, let me start with this ironic statement. Um, Charles Taylor here, so again, quoting this guy, Charles Taylor, who I think I need to read, has done much to show that expressive individualism is a social phenomenon. Now just just kind of reflect on the irony of that. Expressive individualism is a social, in other words, it doesn't happen by itself. We think that individualism would be individual, but it not, it's not, it's in fact social. But he goes on, he says, that social phenomenon emerges through the dialogical nature of what it means to be a person. In other words, and I think this is stating truths that lead to the point. But the point is that I, as a, what does it mean to be a person? It means to be having a conversation. And that conversation first starts with myself. And myself then emerges out of that conversation, what I think of myself. But, but I learn those words that I'm using to describe myself from the fact that I was born in a family that taught me how to talk. <laughs> in other words... We, we, there's no isolation there from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. So there's this internal conversation, which is what we call the conscience. Well, uh, the conscience is what happens when that internal conversation is making conclusions or judgments. But there's that internal conversation that's happening, and so that we, we are from the very beginning, so that dialogical, and it has to do with this word, this conversation. He, he has a book called The Language Animal, Charles Taylor does, which I want to read hmm. from the footnote here. Hmm. Uh, but it, but it, this talks about how um, how how we how the logos, but not just the logos, but the dialogos, is foundational to who, even who we are. That there's this sort of ongoing conversation that's, that's happening. Anyway, 
Mm. Fascinating. There. Very interesting. I, I have no idea who this is going to be, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll whiff. Uh, stay tuned to see me whiff at this That'll theologian. That'll be exciting. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to miss that. Uh, but I, I actually have a question for you on the conscience. I want to run something by you, and then uh, yeah, yeah. Do that. So, stay tuned. Table Talk Radio. It's really classy up here. Table Talk Radio will be right back. I'm taking some old Luther stuff, pulling it out of the collections, and publishing it. You can download it for free or buy them for five bucks. Find it, the Everyone's Luther, at wolfmuller.co. Click on the books at the top of the page. So you brought up the conscience, and um, I was thinking about this this morning, um, and that it's not necessarily related to the quotes that you've been bringing out for Name That Theologian, but I was thinking how many different states of the conscience are there? Yes. Um, and I was thinking, at first, at first I thought three, that there's just the, the conscience that is that is uh, callous, it is prideful, it is numb to uh, to any prick. Um, and then there's the conscience uh, that is uh, burdened and troubled. Mm-hmm. And then there is the conscience that is comforted. And so mm-hmm. I, I was going with three. But then I, I remember a long time ago you mentioning a, a distinction between a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience. Is that still something that you think about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would you say there's four states of the conscience? Maybe more than that, too, because there's the... Um... Well, because there's kind of different degrees, right? Um, like a, a conscience can be hardened or softened. So there's like degrees of hardness and softness. And so a callous conscience, but, you know, some calluses will prevent the feeling in your hands for some things, but not others. So so the conscience is on this kind of scale of being hardened or softened. But then there's and then there's the um, no conscience at all. That's completely gone, like a dead conscience. That's the. Um, a psychosis, and then there's the troubled versus terrified conscience, which is I don't think is a, a technical distinction, but helpful because because what's bothering my conscience is it the fact that I've done something wrong for myself, or that I've done something wrong for God, or that I've done something wrong to the neighbor? And a terrified conscience is a conscience that knows that God is offended. So everybody has a troubled conscience, like ah, nobody's perfect, but a terrified conscience says, oh, I deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. So, um, when you say that's not a technical distinction, I, I'm, I'm trying to think how that fits into pastoral care. Um, yeah. I think it's it's uh, embedded in particularly a Lutheran pastor when you see someone who uh, is remorseful for their sin. It's gospel time, right, to start comforting. Mm-hmm. But but is is there some more work to be done to to ask the question whether a person is remorseful? I mean, I may not just literally just ask the question, but to, to but to to bring out whether a person is remorseful simply because they've uh, offended their neighbor, but they're right. not yet haven't put their sin before God. Yeah, because they're caught. Yeah, or or, or maybe yeah. I mean, to say it like that, just that they're that sounds kind of trite. But maybe they feel really bad. Like I have a gambling problem, and now my my kids are suffering for it. But that doesn't mean that I've yet you know, thought about that as a transgression against right. against God. 
Right. Can we say, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord? That's the Psalm 51 distinction, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Do we recognize that it's God, and chiefly, in fact, so chiefly is this against God that it's really only against God? Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. It's, it's like, no, no, I've, I've really hurt my neighbor, but I don't think God is that worried about it. Well, you're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, I th- I've always thought that was interesting. David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Like, well... What about Uriah? Did <laughs> you sin against him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about Bathsheba? <laughs> what about your baby boy who died because of your sin? Right. Okay, well, that's that's a bit of a, a digression, but it was an interesting thing I was thinking about. Um, so maybe we should uh, we should talk more about that sometime. Yeah, I think so. All right, what's your guess on this book? Boy, I have no idea. Um, so, uh, oh. Oops. Uh, I was going to offer a guess, guess. though. Um, yeah. But uh, so, so you kind of tipped it that is, not, you know, not a Lutheran. He's not getting his arms around this, but he's a, a modern thinker, a profound thinker. Um, you know, someone that I've I've bumped into recently that uh, just on the YouTubes and stuff. He's very profound. He's a great critic of our cultural thought, uh, but we'd certainly have some theological differences with, uh, and that is uh, Doug Wilson. Uh, interesting guy. Oh, so I'm going to throw that name yeah. out. He is interesting. No, this is um, Carl Truman. Oh, Carl, of course. Yeah, that was my next the guess. Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Mm-hmm. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. 2020. This is a new book. I don't normally read the new ones, you know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't... If he was Lutheran, oh, this would be... Because there would be another sentence on every paragraph that would push it down to Gnosticism, like you said, to enthusiasm. But he can't quite, at least yet, he can't quite get there. Okay, are you ready? What is his background? Do you know? No, he's a teacher somewhere. It's published by Wheaton. I can't remember. Okay, that's fine. All right, so now we're going to a a publication, it looks like, for Name That Theologian or something. Yes. Okay, all right. Yes. Um... Oh, I want to. Uh, I can just read from anywhere in this thing here. I got see it's a magazine. Um, I wonder if if I should just. How about this? I'll just read here. Modern industrialism may have made itself democratic, if we merely mean by that that the democracy is formally cons- uh, consulted about a great many things, including a great many things that it does not understand. The point is that. It is not consulted about the things that it does understand, for it is not asked about whether it would like the daily life of its own civilization altered or not. It is not asked, for instance, whether it would like its villages turned into suburbs. It is not asked whether its local shopkeepers should have their trade extinguished by the great stores of the great cities. It is not asked whether it would like its own English landscape littered with advertisements. I do not profess to say how the question would be answered. I only say the question is not asked. The things we vote on are very seldom the things we see and smell and eat and drink and do. These are more and more controlled by vast and vague central forces at once autocratic and anonymous. This is the real modern problem, which has nothing to do with utopias. And until it is solved, there will be a real satire and self-government for men who are invited to govern everything except themselves. <laughs> Interesting. So so I think this is um, making a commentary on this uh this uh, representative democracy, but there's uh, a lot that stands outside of that. So, um, you know, we 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 might uh, vote on on 
legislators and then they pass laws and all of this. Uh, but but what's what's not under the purview of that is everything else in life. <laughs> you know, the things that that change, how businesses grow and, and diminish and things like that. Um, that's that's ruled more by just how people live their lives. Um, am I am I beating on the right drum so far? Yep, yep, yep. So this is interesting. Uh, I'm interested to see where this goes. What, what's what's next in this one? Uh, let's see. Here's another one. Um, the man of science can prophesy a comet, but he cannot prophesy a shower, rain shower. Clouds are close to us and of great practical importance to us, but they remain far more free and fitful and elusive than the remotest star. Comets are commonly even more distant than stars, yet they can, to a great extent, be traced, though they have no practical importance until they come near enough to be something more than practical and decidedly less than useful. (laughs) (laughs) There is much in politics and sociology of this paradox of the comet and the cloud. The professor at the garden party can stand radiantly explaining in defiance of the book of Job that he can in one sense bind the influence of the Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion, but he cannot tell at what moment the guests at the garden party will begin to feel the sweet influences of a steady downpour, or how soon he will be driven to loose the bands of his own umbrella. Hmm. (laughs) Hmm, hmm. Ah, Oh, boy. So what publication is this that you're reading from? I'm going to read one more. (laughs) Okay. Merely to wish for advanced art is not anachronism. It is simply snobbishness, and snobbishness more vulgar than the vulgarest worship of rank and wealth. For after all, there is at least a low sort of sincerity in that sort of snobbery. Rich people can give their sycophants solid pleasure of a sort, for which they can be thanked without falsehood. And it's a shade more honest for men to praise a patron for the champagne and cigars they do enjoy than for the pictures and statues they only pretend to enjoy. Hmm. (laughs) But these great revolutions in art are never patronized by anyone except the very rich. Hmm. We shall all be relieved to hear that the two different types of snobbishness can generally be practiced at the same dinner table. Anyhow, the fashion in these things is almost always some form or another of intellectual cowardice and many eminent persons say to one another, a very interesting experiment, or an attempt to approach life from a new angle, when, if they were moved suddenly to candor, they would look at one another and say, are all the artists going mad? <laughs> wow. Well, uh, so I'm leaning towards uh, one of the early church fathers. Um <laughs> Yeah, sip your Bronco drink. <laughs> Stall for time. Uh, man, I don't know. I, I don't even guess on this one. G.K. Chesterton. I'm wow. reading from the Gilbert magazine. Can you Now, I was thinking about this. I got the Gilbert magazine, you know, so I'm funding some sort of Catholic thing by subscribing to this, I'm sure. Um, which, But I was thinking about why don't we have a Martin magazine, you know? A it's Martin Luther waiting. magazine? It's, thought, it just has... This is we do have the Lutheran witness, right? But this has mostly it'll have like every third article is basically something by G.K. Chesterton, and then people reflecting in a Chestertonian kind of way. Mm. It's kind of nice. And I thought we need to do that. We need to start a Martin magazine. But then I realized why we don't do it, why we don't have a Martin magazine, because there's something about and I this is a G.K. Chesterton way of thinking. There's something about the Catholic spirit that wants to always rally around a particular person. So, so, I mean, the, the the kind of 
you know, that when you go to the monastery, there's a certain monk, you know, you're Augustinian or you're Benedictine or you're whatever. Mm. Or if you go and visit the Catholic retreat centers, there's one guy who started it and there's a statue of him out front and there's all this stuff on his life. Yeah, we don't do that in Lutheran church. Well, I know what you we mean. We do, but, <laughs> but that's that kind of gathering around that person. I just don't think. Anyway, I've been thinking about how you you can have an order of G.K. Chesterton, but I don't think you can have an order of Martin Luther. Right. Yeah, that's the perception from those outside, but that's not exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The Catholics accuse us of what they are guilty of. Yeah. Right. Table Talk Radio. <laughs> no, that's just silly. Hey, daily devotions for your family. Around the Word is found at whatdoesthismean.org. Well, let's come to the point of the show where we do some Ten Commandments in the news. Got an interesting one for you, Pastor. Uh, this All right. came to us from our listener and podcast techie, Chris. And uh, he uh, brought up an interesting question that we don't usually think about, in, at least in a real serious manner. What about UFOs? I've got a quick, oh. got a quick story for you here on that. All right. Here's the... You know, you know, my always... dad was born on the day that the crash happened in Roswell. Oh, really? That was his birthday. Mm-hmm. Mm. I always did, thought did, that was suspicious. Did you? I I agree. Oh yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, here we go. The day he came to Earth. <laughs> and kryptonite seems to really bother him too. From a Navy destroyer, a mysterious flying triangle above the deck of the ship. The Pentagon confirming the images obtained by documentary filmmaker Jeremy Corbell were taken by Navy personnel, expected to be a part of a report on unidentified aerial phenomenon to be presented to Congress this summer. Already online, some skeptics say the images are caused by cameras trying to focus, but some of the objects go beyond just flying in the sky. One shows a spherical object dipping into the ocean, similar to an incident in Puerto Rico, where an object was tracked buzzing an airport, then flying into the water, popping back out before appearing to split into two and disappearing. Over the last several... No. My internet is unstable, apparently. <laughs> well, they don't want us to know. Several oh, weeks, you know. some of the yeah. nation's top former intelligence officials have been raising eyebrows. Former CIA director R. James Woolsey said he knew of a case where a plane was paused in midair. A friend of mine was able to have his aircraft stop at 40,000 feet or so and not continue uh, uh, operating as a normal uh, aircraft. What was going on? In December, ex-CIA director John Brennan said it was arrogant to believe there are no other forms of life other than the ones on Earth. And former intelligence chief John Radcliffe says officials have been tracking technology beyond our capabilities. We're talking about objects picked up by satellite imagery that are difficult to explain. Like another incident off the coast of California in 2004, when a fighter squadron encountered an object that seemed to defy gravity. What do you think it is? I, I honestly don't know. I don't think that we have developed that technology. I don't think we developed it on this. Ooh, 
All right. So there's uh, some of the story. All right. <laughs> so let's enter the X-Files here. Excuse and, me. And, That's right. Uh, now I, what do we say about this? This, this is a bit of a red herring, but I, I have always found it very interesting that we're so fascinated about finding intellectual life on other planets and UFOs and all stuff. But when we look into the womb of a woman, we say, no life here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Like, I don't think we're Can qualified we fa- to, to determine if, if where life a, is. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, that's right. If you found a fetus on Mars, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do now? I mean, yeah. I mean, we'd, we'd find some, like, caterpillar and be like, oh, there's life on Mars. But we would go, uh, but we can, you know, kill whatever life is in the womb. That's a fine point that you made. But uh, That's a fine point. that notwithstanding, I mean, um, you, so so I think, I think uh, we typically put this into the category of crazy, and I'm not a big... I'm not big into like sci-fi or any of this kind of stuff, but I mean, suppose as we discover more things, if we, if someday we do find out that there is life somewhere else in 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 the universe, uh, does that change anything for Christian doctrine? I don't think so. There, I mean, there's nothing about the Bible that says, "Hey, there's no life out there." I think that one of the most intriguing things I read about this was C.S. Lewis, who he wrote a space trilogy, and. And he talks about that there's basically like Mars was populated before Earth and then Earth and then Venus was populated after Earth. And so the creatures on Venus are human because they, they were created after the incarnation. It's kind of amazing. Hmm. But they are they ha- there was no fall on Mars or Venus. And so so there's no there's no effects of sin and that and they see Earth as the occupied planet and the danger. So they're trying to keep the danger kind of on earth because they don't want earth to invade them <laughs> so it's the opposite you know we we normally think that if someone comes from the outside in they're going to be malevolent and they're going to be the evil intruders and we're the good or something like that but you know we're the ones that are fallen dying sinful um but how do, you know it's it is helpful i think i mean the ufo is a helpful designation it's unidentified flying mm-hmm. object it's when we got to start worrying is when they become identified mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's when you start to shake hands with them and know their names and then you're like now you're an identified flying object that's that's even more but it it's it's good for us to have a a humble view of uh it, it's good especially for science to be humbled and say there's things that we cannot, we don't know how to identify them, we don't know how to categorize them, we don't know how to speak of them. That's good. It's really, really good because one of the dangers of science is always that it wants to, I think, overstate what it knows, and that's where the danger is. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that that uh, it seems like um, everyone's about science. I mean, have you noticed this, particularly in politics? Um, science becomes like the the uh the appeal to authority you know so so if anyone you know questions anything we'll say well they're just not behind the science this this happened like the accusations that were leveled against like mike pence for example well you know i'm uh oh it was, it was in mike pence um was was heading up the task force against coronavirus or something like that and the Dem- democrats were like great give a person who doesn't believe in science the work of coronavirus thanks a lot um and so so whenever whenever there's like some kind of a dispute it's like well you just don't believe the science that's your problem as if science is settled on all things 
<laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's a there's a, a a different definition of what actually is science. It seems. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty good. Anything else about that? I. Yeah, I, there's uh, there, um, uh, there. So. When it comes to, I, I do not know if the UFO counts as a as a supernatural phenomenon, but when it comes to this, it, maybe it is. It's a lot of times kind of put into the same sort of category. When it comes to the supernatural, we should remember also that the, there are uh, malevolent beings out there who are bent on deceiving us. So the church has long understood, for example, that the phenomenon of ghosts are is a true phenomenon, but that ghosts are not a true phenomenon, but that rather the demons are masquerading. And so there is always this, uh, I mean, when it comes to how in the Christian worldview do we, can we understand these things, there could be life on other planets. That's, that is a possibility. We don't, there's nothing that would that we would deny about that but there also could be these the malevolent forces that are bent on our deception also so we have to ask the question what's the theology of the ufo and when we see that the theology is a false theology then we know the source of it i mean when if the theology is an evolutionary cosmology or whatever then we know that we are uh that we're dealing with false doctrine mm-hmm. ufos preach falsely just like ghosts preach a false doctrine hmm. yeah so so that we can let we i mean we can let the possibility of life somewhere else exist without it uh leading us astray from the teachings that we have in scripture mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. okay well the other big news item with just a couple minutes left is um thing that just happened as we Sit here, record today. Yesterday, the uh, verdict came out in the Derek uh, Chauvin case. This was the police officer that was uh, charged with uh, murder of George Floyd, and uh, he was charged with uh, three accounts: second degree murder, third degree murder, and involuntary manslaughter. And he was found guilty on all three accounts. I'm not entirely clear how you can be charged with with uh, any degree of murder and involuntary manslaughter, it seems like those are exclusive to one or the other. Either either they acted carelessly or they had intent to kill, but it seems like it's one or the other to me. But that uh, my ignorance of 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 legality aside, uh, what are your thoughts as far as this in terms of uh, uh, Christian response? Well, we know that um, you shall not murder stands as sort of the pinnacle of civilized society, the fifth commandment, and we should be protecting life and honoring life. I suppose we give thanks that there is a rule of law. Um, We, I think, are entering very difficult times where... So, okay, my fear is that the verdict was influenced by the... I don't... I hope that that's not the case, that the verdict was influenced by the fear of what would happen if there was a different verdict. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, then we've now moved apart, we've moved away from the rule of law. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I hope and pray that that is not the case. But I suppose we give thanks to God for the existence of courts, and I'm thankful that, I mean, I'm not the judge or jury in this case, so it's not up to me to determine the the guilt or the innocence um, that was there. And uh, we pray that there would be 
I mean, look, it's gonna, it's gonna, there's gonna be more and more people dying because we, our culture is simply given over to death, and there's no way that, um, there's no understanding that of the image of God that, that in fact exalts the human life to a place where it ought to be honored and protected like it should, and so I think that continues to erode uh, in our midst. Yeah. Uh, I I agree with your sentiment that we, I I would want the rule of law to be the rule of law, and not be influenced by by um, political or other agendas, and so I'm not asserting to to say that that did or didn't happen here. Just you know that we would want, you know, if we were on trial, we would want the most objective jurors as possible, right? So we want that as well. Um, I I also kind of this, this my final thought on this was actually this kind of corresponds to what you were talking earlier about the um, the institutions um, that institution ex- exists for the carrying out of justice. Uh, so if if there's a protest in any in any sense saying there's an injustice, the uh, you look to an institution for for that justice, and if it's found then. Then there is, by definition, no injustice, right? I mean, there can only be injustice if nothing is done. Mm-hmm. But but when once something's carried out, then there is in fact justice. Uh, mm-hmm. So the institutions in that case are are working as they're as they're supposed to. So, mm-hmm. well, I'm afraid that's going to be all the time we have. Uh, so thank you for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. I can't find where I wrote down the buzzwords. That's a great buzzword. Worthy. We're your. Thanks for listening to this edition host. of Table Talk Radio. Table Talk Radio is not what for was everyone. Yours? Please consult your Arto pastor before Latreo? listening to Table yeah, Talk the, Radio. The bread Side effects may include nausea, vomiting, headache, heartburn, I can't you didn't hallucinations, use that. and aversion to incomplete sentences. You were supposed to use that. Remember, that was the one that I had. Halitosis, lung cancer, brain tumors, sleep gain, internal bleeding, internal combustion, a sudden craving to smell your vaccine, an uncontrollable urge to fight the capitalists on Twitter, and falling off your treadmill. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. 